Come uh, now to the scripture. Let me ask you please to bow to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word. It's amazing to us, to me, that we sit here with the very word of God right before us. Um, That's unthinkable. That the God of all that is, the God of all creation, uh, the one who is and always has been and always will be, the one about whom our words uh, fail to describe, has written to us, spoken to us in a way that's perfectly done, that is for our benefit, that we may know who we are, we may know who you are, and how we are to live, what it really means to live. So, Father, I pray that we not take it lightly that you, Holy Spirit, impress upon us what we have here in the Word of God, and that we attend to it. Help us remove, God, any distractions that we may have from our natural weakness or from our sin, and enable us to hear and believe. This I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter seven. Second chapters. Second Samuel chapter 7, please. I want to read the first 17 verses. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king, and the king there is David, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you up from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I was appointed, that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom 
shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, you've been with us, if you've been with us for a while, you know, we're walking through, tracing through this idea of covenant through the scripture. We're doing that, again, our kind of our jump off point or our foundational point is Psalm 25, 14, where David writes, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. And so what is promised here, what is told us here, is that we'll know the intimacies of God, we'll know his plans, we'll know his desires, uh, we'll know the end result of all of his creation, we'll know his heart, really, his friendship. If we submit to him, we fear him, we come to him, and he's going to then friendship us, be intimate with us, teach us his ways by way of covenant. The point is, if we know covenant, then we will know these intimacies, we will know these the way the Bible puts it, secret things of God. Now why is that? Why does covenant enable us to know this? Well, covenant, remember, is a relational word. We speak of God making covenant. We're talking about God being in relationship with. And God makes covenant in the context of creation, in the context of various people. And and we find then relationships between God and those parties with whom he makes this this covenant. And covenant helps us to understand the relationship because covenant establishes and defines that relationship. So we see in covenant, we see that the parties are identified. We know who's involved. We see the responsibilities of each to the other because they're laid out. We find that each party agrees to this, the vows that they make. And we see in the midst of covenant guarantees that these responsibilities will be met. Guarantees, we remember the oath curse that's taken that says that if I don't fulfill this vow, if I don't fulfill these promises, if I don't fulfill these responsibilities, then be it done unto me as was done unto this animal. That is, I'd be killed. And so we see that sense there. Also, last Sunday, we, 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 we played around, we thought about this word loving kindness. We see in the midst of covenant, especially God makes with people, that, that, that God re- um, fulfills his responsibilities, not simply because he has to, not simply because of way of duty. He will. It's guaranteed but because of loving kindness. It's out of love that he does it. It's a joy to him, if you will, to fulfill his obligations. And it's to be our joy to fulfill our obligations to God as well as he lays out these stipulations for us. We also realize that in the context of covenant, that when covenant is made between God and people, that he's not only making it with that individual person, but all those who are represented by that person. Remember last Sunday, we looked at the the covenant made between two people, between David and Jonathan. And remember that Jonathan was obligated by loving kindness to show the, the, the love of the covenant to Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan. And he was obligated to do that, to show him that loving kindness, because Mephibosheth was in Jonathan, even though he wasn't born yet, in Jonathan, when that covenant was made. And so as we've been looking at these various covenant, covenants that God makes with people, we find the covenant that God made with Adam was with Adam and all of those in Adam at the time, which was the whole human race. And so whatever happened to Adam happened to all of us. And with Noah, the human race. With Abraham, he made covenant with Abraham. With Abraham and all of his descendants. He made covenant with Moses and all that were of the nation. And so you see, it's all those in him. 
Now, the glory of that, I hope it was glorious to you, and is glorious to you, is to realize that we're in Christ. Thus, when the Father is in covenant with his Son, and his, covenant co- his Son comes to die for all those in him, that we're the beneficiaries of that. And we're the beneficiaries of that, not because of anything that's true of us, in the sense that we're righteous, or good, or deserving, but because of our covenant brother, covenant head, Christ. We're in him. So all of that comes to us. Now, this week, I want to take up a covenant that God makes with David. And this covenant is often referred to as the covenant of the kingdom because through this covenant, God establishes David as king. Not only David as king, but those in him as king as well that we'll see. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that we would come to a point of having a covenant in the context of a king. And the reason it shouldn't surprise us is that if we allow ourselves, we can go back again and consider the covenants that we've already discussed. Those covenants, in a sense, are establishing a kingdom. In fact, the very kingdom of God. When we think about kingdom, we realize that there needs to be a king or a sovereign to rule over. And we realize there needs to be a people that belong to that king and a place upon which those people live and that king over which that king rules. And so if you look at the Garden of Eden, if you look at this covenant of creation, this covenant with Adam, we find all those ingredients right there. We find people, Adam and Eve, and to be their descendants after them. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, We see a land, the Garden, Eden, And we also see sovereign. Adam was to rule over the garden and God over Adam. And so we see this kingdom in a sense, this prototypical, this pattern of this kingdom of God. That God is to rule and reign over his people who dwell on his earth in in his place. And they're to follow after him because the key stipulation of the covenant is that they're to be obedient to him. Now we realize that Adam and Eve weren't obedient to God. Therefore, that kingdom in a sense perished. I mean, we said, whoa, what happened? They were banished from that place. And then God makes this covenant with Noah and says, don't worry, I'm going to preserve this earth until all of my promises have been fulfilled. Then he comes to Abraham and he makes Abraham this wonderful promise. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. Wow. All of a sudden, we're talking kingdom again. What is a nation? A nation is a group of people that live in a place that are ruled, right? That are governed. And so God says, I'm going to make you to be a great nation. And out of you is going to come one from whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Your nation is going to bless all the families of the earth. Because you see, God had made a promise way back with Adam and Eve. God had made a promise when that kingdom failed, if you will, when it perished because of their sin. He made a promise that one would come. One would come from the seed of the woman and do what? Crush the head of the serpent. Now, when God speaks of one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, it doesn't sound like he's going to send in a negotiating team. What's it sound like he's going to send in? It sounds like he's going to send in someone who has great authority, someone in a military kind of way, and violently deal with this evil one and crush his head. And so as these things build up, we have all of a sudden this promise to Abraham of a nation that's going to come. And out of this nation is going to come one who will bless all of the others. And then there's the covenant with Moses. 
And the covenant with Moses establishes this nation at, at Mount Sinai and it gives them a constitution. It gives them a law under which they're to live. And these will be God's people. He says, I'm going to make you to be my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation, a people of my own possession, he says. And so here we have this nation of Israel forming. They have the law of God, his very will. He is going to rule over them, and he is going to give them a land that he promised to their father Abraham. See, all of this is coming together. And the only thing that's missing is a king. Because you see, after uh, Moses gave the people the law, and God says, you'll be my people and I'll live among you, uh, they began to, to move. And, and, and after some wanderings for a while, you remember, uh, Joshua became commander. And under the command of Joshua, the people entered into the land and it was divided up. And at that point, it says there was rest. Uh, the problem was, however, you might remember during the days of what is called the judges, that the overriding characteristic of the people during that time was this, that every man did what was right in his own eyes. That doesn't really sound good, does it? I mean, if you leave your kids for a while and the babysitter says when you get home, they all did <laughs> what they thought right in their own eyes, you're saying, I don't want to go in there. <laughs> it's going to be a mess. Well, that's what it was in ancient Israel. It was a mess. Uh, they all did what was right in their own eyes. And so the cycle went something like this. Things were fine. Then they all did what was right in their own eyes and rebelled against God. And, and thus they were, they were then taken captive. And, and then God in his graciousness would raise up one called a judge, a charismatic leader. And he would come in and deliver the people. And then all would be well for a while. And then everyone would do what was right in their own eyes. And then boom, the whole cycle goes over and over again. And after a while... It, the realization was, we need someone to, to kind of mind the store. We need someone to govern us. And so there was a clamoring for a king. It wasn't quite in God's timing, not quite as he would have liked it. So he gave them a king. He gave them a king, Saul, who was ultimately unfaithful. And God had to rip the kingdom out of his hand. But you remember, as we talked last Sunday, that while Saul was still on the throne, God anointed his king. He anointed this shepherd boy, David. Nobody thought he should be the king. His family was shocked that he would be the one of all the, of all the brothers that would be chosen to be the next king. But even while he was a boy, he was a teenager, he was, he was anointed to be the next king. He had a relationship with King Saul, you remember. Saul had these fits of rage. David was a harpist. They brought David in to play the harp in the palace so that the, the, the moods of the king could be soothed. You remember, too, that David was the one who defeated the great giant Goliath. And that brought tremendous division between Saul and David because Saul then became very jealous of David. And so David then, even though he was the anointed king and Saul was on the throne, David had to flee and run for his own life, which he did for at least a decade. A day came, however, that Saul died. You remember there was a battle. Saul was wounded. He fell on his own sword so he wouldn't be captured. His son Jonathan was killed and the other, two of his other sons as well. And so now it appears as if it's clear for David to be king. Couple of problems, however. Number one, one of King Saul's other sons, still alive, named Ishbosheth, uh, declared himself to be king. And the people of Israel bought in. So David really had 
royal status only in his own tribe, only in Judah. All the other tribes of Israel were following Ishbosheth. Finally, Ishbosheth is murdered, so that clears that problem, if you will. But the second problem was that David was um, living in Hebron and really was to be established in Jerusalem. But the Jebusites occupied Jerusalem, so David then had to clear that way, and so the Jebusites were defeated, and then finally David was able to be established as king in Jerusalem. So he did what he always, it appears, wanted to do, what was really fitting to do. He brought this Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box. Ark just means a container of. So next time you want to get a cup of coffee, get yourself an Ark, put the coffee in. It's just a container. Ark means it holds something, right? Not fancy language there, just it's something, to, it's a container, it's an Ark. Now, inside the Ark, what it contained was... Aaron's rod to enable the people to say, oh yes, God has delivered us a jar of manna, not for, you know, midnight snacks. It was to symbolize, to be in there, uh, to say, God has provided for us. And then there were two tablets of the law, two tablets of the, what we would call the Ten Commandments. Now that was fitting because you see that was the covenant. There was evidence of the covenant right there. Those were the covenant documents. Remember we've been saying all along that, that when a covenant is made, one of the guarantees of, of the fulfilling of the covenant is having documents that would be filed, documents that would be kept by each party. And so there were two copies, one for God and one for the people, and they were in the Ark of the Covenant. And that stood as a testimony first to the covenant that God had made with them, and then secondly to their obligations that they had towards God. There they were in the ark. And that ark then symbolized for the people the very presence of God. And so David said, we need to bring this here. So all of a sudden, what we have converging on Jerusalem at this moment in time is David, God's king, and God's constitution, God's promises, God's covenant, God's presence right there among the people. So that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, in verse uh, 1, we read this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought, us in, 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 and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. And so the people recognized David there. And then in chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king, David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, there it is. Peace. It's all come to fruition. All that God had promised. Right there, God says, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you peace and I'm going to give you my very presence. It was all right there, right in Jerusalem at that moment in time. It's as if the kingdom of God was on earth. Now we'll see in a minute, it wasn't quite all there. And so God is saying, all right, here we are. Here's my rule and reign right here on the earth. And so David begins to muse, saying, I live in a house, and God lives in a tent. That's probably not good. So I'm going to make God a house. And Nathan the prophet sits with David and says, that sounds like a great idea. So Nathan goes home and he goes to bed and begins to sleep. God wakes him up and says, Nathan, 
Not such a good idea. Now this is wonderful because see, Nathan's a prophet. And we think prophets are infallible when they speak the truth of God, which they are. But Nathan was just sort of talking, it seems. The good news is that when God has a prophet, he won't let him not speak truth. And so he says, Nathan, no, 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 no. And here's what to really tell David. And so God doesn't let that all happen, that mistake happen. And Nathan is told by God what he's to speak to David. And it goes something like this. Go tell David, who in the world do you think you are to build me a house? Have I asked for a house? Have I needed a house yet? Wasn't it good that I didn't have a house? Because if I had a house, I couldn't have traveled with you. <laughs> and so I traveled with you, and I moved with you, and I was with you. And, and when I want a house, I want a house. I had a feeling, too, God was saying, and I want better than cedar. <laughs> the best you'll do is cedar. I'll give you some instructions in a while, and it'll be way cooler than cedar. But, 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 but the sense, and he says to David, now, David, you need to know, didn't, wasn't I the one who brought you up from the past year? Weren't you just a shepherd boy? Now you're king? David, how did that happen? Didn't I have a little something to do with that? Well, yes, I did. I was the one that made that all happen. And now there's a play on words in this chapter with the word house. It's used in three different ways. One word, one Hebrew word, one word, word house, but it's used in three different ways. David speaks of his house, which would be the palace. He speaks of building a house for God, which would be the temple. But God then says of building, not building, but making David's house. And when he speaks of making David's house, he's speaking of making a dynasty, which is a succession of kings. We use that expression often, of, uh, especially of, of other countries and other times that had dynasties. We speak of the house of, well, that's the way it was used here in this uh, expression from David, uh, from God to David. Verse, middle of verse 10 uh, Nathan is told this, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord God declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, that is, this dynasty, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. So he's saying, listen, this is what your house is going to look like. This is what I'm building for you. Clearly, it's not bricks and mortar. Clearly, it's not cedar. Clearly, it's not a house like you're talking about a house. It's this kingdom that I'm going to build. Because God says, I'm going to raise up your offspring who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his, he could say, if he wants to be consistent language-wise, but he's being very explicit here. He says, and I will establish not his house, but his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his house or his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In other words, he said, listen, David, I'm going to establish your throne. I'm going to establish your rule forever. And the one who comes after you will be like a son to me. He'll be my son. And my son will rule. Which is exactly right. If God wants to rule the earth, I'll not best to do it but through his son, one who is like him, one who represents him, one who is really the heir to the throne and he says will be my son and then he backs up a bit and he says when he commits iniquity I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, in other words you'll have sons that won't do so well till the son comes and I'll discipline them and here's why he says at verse 15 but my steadfast love 
covenant love, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In other words, I'm not going to do with your sons as I did with Saul. I'm not going to yank the throne from them. Always there'll be this one from your house ruling and reigning over my people. Verse 16. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established before forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David would understand this to be a covenant. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. David in the latter days of his life talking about his life, talking about God's promises, puts it in this context. He says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. In other words, David understands covenant. He understands if God has made these promises, it's secure. He understands that his covenant with David is just as secure as his covenant with Abraham, just as secure as his covenant with Moses. He knows that God has made covenant and God will treat him with loving kindness. In fact, and I don't have time to do this, but spend some time reading through the Psalms. You could shortcut it if you have a concordance or a Bible program thing and type in, concord- type in loving kindness or steadfast love, whatever it is that your translation translates, translates the word chesed, and you'll find that David, throughout the Psalms, appeals to God on the basis of loving kindness for everything. When he has enemies, he says, God, for your loving kindness sake, help me. When, he's, when, he, when, he, when he needs answer to prayer, he says, God, hear my prayer on the basis of your loving kindness. When he's concerned about the future, when he's concerned about other kings that will come after him and his, the establishment of his throne, he says, God, according to your loving kindness. When he sins, he says, Psalm 51, forgive me according to your loving kindness. He's always appealing on the basis of God's covenant. He knows, and he said, that's the cure. That's the magic word. That's the magic heart. When I come to God and I appeal on the basis of loving kindness, he will heal me because he has made covenant with me. And so David knows this. So David says, this is secure. My throne is established. This is an everlasting, this is an everlasting covenant. In fact, in Psalm 89, Ethan, who is a psalmist, is writing of this covenant with David, and he says essentially the same thing. Psalm 89, verse 1. Ethan writes, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. In other words, covenant love, covenant language. With my mouth I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. And the heavens will establish your faithfulness. You've said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations. And again, in your leisure, when you have time, read through the rest of Psalm 89. You'll find verses 20 through about 36 or 37 laying out the terms of the covenant. You'll find uh, verse 38 through 45 laying out what happens when kings sin. You'll find then verses 48 through the end how God will be faithful to his covenant because of the pleas of his people. All right? A covenant. God makes a covenant with David. It says your throne's going to be established forever. He will be the king. He will be and ones from him will be the shepherds of Israel. Now, 
you know the history of Israel, you might be scratching your head at the moment thinking, really? You know that Solomon started out really well. David's son, this one God said, will be my son. And, 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 and Solomon started out really, really well, but, but he didn't end so well. In fact, at the very end of Solomon's reign, you remember that God says, I'm going to rip the kingdom in two. And so at that point in time, Israel went into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you have opportunity to read through the history of, of, of ancient Israel, you realize that of the, of the 19 or 20 kings of the, of the northern kingdom, none of them were faithful. And of the 20 or so kings of the southern kingdom, only about two were consistently faithful, another half a dozen relatively faithful. All the rest were skunks. And you think, if it's these, especially in the southern kingdom, these from, the, from, from David's household, God, what are you talking about? How, how, how is this good for the kingdom of Israel? And then, in 586 BC, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom had already been destroyed in 722, but in 586 BC, the southern kingdom was invaded, the temple was burned, the, burned down, the palace was burned, the people were exiled, and even though the people returned later, there still was no king because there was no palace because the people were under, under the rule of others. And so, God, what are you talking about? How can you say that David's throne will be established forever? Well, prior to the exile, the, the, the prophets began to pick up this whole idea of this one who will sit on the throne of David. In fact, the prophet Isaiah put it like this. He said in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah is saying, listen, a child is going to come. And he's going to say he's going to come from the stump of Jesse, who was Jesse, David's dad. And so he's going to come from the line of David. And he says this of him, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, he's saying, one's going to come. I know what it's going to look like. Trust me. One's going to come. He's going to come and he's going to be uh, of David. He's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule with justice and righteousness. And he says, and it will happen because this is God's passion. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. In other words, nothing will stop God. Jeremiah picked up this same theme. In Jeremiah in chapter 23, we read this. Verse 1. Jeremiah says, Woe to the shepherds, that is to the kings, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and you've driven them away and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David 
a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, the king was to be the righteous representative of the rule of God on the earth. Right? Let me say that again a little differently. The king was to be the righteous representative of the righteousness of God on the earth. Let me say that differently again. The king was to be the righteous representative of the justice of God on the earth. That is, all that was right was to be represented by God's king. So when God called a king to be in Israel, when he called Saul, Saul wasn't it. When he called David, David was in certain measure and perhaps a few others. When he called a king to be the king in Israel, he called him to be the one to execute the very righteousness of God. You read Psalm 72, it's about the king. And the king in Psalm 72 is the one one who is to have the very righteousness, the very justice of God. So much so that he always does right and he causes the people to do right as well. So he's protecting always this righteous representative of the righteousness of God on the earth. He's always protecting those with no voice. He's always protecting the poor. He's always protecting those who perhaps will not receive justice. He's the one who looks out for them, so much so that he gains a great reputation and everyone respects him because of how it is that he rules the people fairly and justly. Indeed, people are to look at him and actually see the glory of God. That's the king. And so he says, God says, I've I've placed these kings and I get it. I realize they haven't been good shepherds. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to bring this one. I'm going to raise him up, a righteous branch from David. He's going to reign as king and he will be called, that is his name will be the Lord, our righteousness. And then in Jeremiah in chapter 33, we read this. I could read a lot. I'm just, let me begin with verse 19. Verses 14 through 18 sort of review what I've just read, almost the same. Then verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. You catch that. God is saying, if you can break, somehow cause the sun not to shine, then you're probably right. There won't be a there won't be a son of David on the throne. But if you can't, then trust me. God is saying, listen, I'm sovereign over the sun. I'm sovereign over the day and night. That's my deal. Nobody can change that. Nobody can stop that. And so it's as secure as night and day that there will be one on the throne of David. And then he goes on and he says, 
My covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, and the host of heaven cannot be numbered in the sands of the sea, cannot be measured so that I'll multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. In other words, he's saying, I have a covenant with creation that won't be broken. I have a covenant with Moses that won't be broken. I have a covenant with Abraham that won't be broken. And I have a covenant with David, and it won't be broken. You can trust me. This king is really coming. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans they choose? They've despised my people so that they're no longer a nation. Thus says the Lord, if I've not established my covenant with day and night and fixed the order of heaven and earth, then I'll reject the offspring of Jacob and David and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, for I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. One more. Because it's the prophet Ezekiel who comes and says this. The word of the Lord comes, came to me, Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? And he simply goes on. And he indicts all the kings of Israel. And he says, listen, you've taken care of yourself, but not the people. You've not ruled righteously. And so here's what I'm going to do. I reject you, and I'm coming. God says, I'm coming. I'm going to be the one. I'm going to seek out my sheep that you've scattered. I'm going to bind up their wounds. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to care for them because I'm going to be their God. And then in verse 24, he ends with this, and he says, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant... David shall be prince among them, for I am the Lord, and I have, I have spoken. And then he says, verse 25, I'll make a covenant with them, a covenant of peace, meaning the kingdom will come. Verse 30, and he says, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep. And, and then, because God is just so nice to us and doesn't want us to miss it, he says, human sheep. In other words, am I being too subtle here? Is my metaphor like over your head? Just in case, human sheep, right? <laughs> You're the human sheep of my pasture. I'm going to send my shepherd. He'll be from David. He'll be my son. If you could start reading the Bible on December 24th, in Genesis in chapter 1. And if you can sustain a continual reading that whole day and through the night, when Christmas morning comes, you'll be peeking at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. And when you get to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, after having read all of that and it's Christmas morning, you will fly out of your chair. Because Matthew 1, 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. And you would go, oh, he's here. This is it. This is the one. And in fact, you read more and you find that Joseph was a son of David. That this Jesus who is to come is out of this 
line. And, and then the, you, you read through Matthew and you come to Luke, uh, Mark, and then Luke. And, and in Luke's gospel, you, you read this narrative again of, of this one who is to come. And, and this angel comes to, to Mary this time and says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And you go, oh, whoa. All right, this is getting interesting. And, that, and, and then the angels come and announce the birth of Jesus and they say to the shepherds, ironically, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who's Christ, who's Christ the Lord. And then of course as Jesus goes around, who is it that knows that he's the son of David? Who is it that knows he's the shepherd of Israel? It's all those who are weak. It's, it's the blind men who cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's the demon possessed who cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's the weak ones, you see. They know who he is. And they know he's to be the king because on that day that we call Palm Sunday, on the day of the triumphal entry, what do they cry out to him? They cry out, son of David, son of David. We know it. We get it. You are the one. You're the one prophesied. You're the one who's the shepherd of Israel. You're the one who's going to usher into the very kingdom of God. You're the one who's going to rule and reign, the righteous representative of, of the justice, of the righteousness, of the mercy of God. You're the one who's going to be here on this throne. You're, the, you're that very one. In fact, Jesus identifies himself with David on various occasions. On one occasion, he, he teases really the, the, the religious leaders and he said, he said, who is David's Lord and how can David call his Lord his son? Whew. They go, I don't know. David said, read Psalm 110 because that's it. And then Jesus has the audacity to speak to them like this. He said, I'm the good shepherd. <laughs> and if you're the disciple of Jesus that moment in time, you've got to shiver. You've got to go, whoa. Ezekiel, this is exactly what Ezekiel said was going to happen. A shepherd was going to come. God was going to come. This very shepherd, and he would be not like a hired hand, but he wouldn't be like those shepherds. He would be the one who would give himself for his sheep. He would seek them. He would bind them up. He would heal them. He's this very one, this very Jesus, this shepherd of Israel. And, of course, Jesus comes, and he does come, and he does that military, kingly, conquering work. He comes, and he crushes the head of the serpent. The way, that, the way that the Apostle Paul speaks of this work of Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, like this, he says, He, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so Jesus did that. He crushed the head of the serpent. And then we realize that he ascended. And when he ascended on high, he took a seat that was the seat enthroned, and he would rule and reign. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 1 concerning Jesus. He says, verse 20, that Jesus has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here is Jesus ruling and reigning. 
And he's ruling and reigning for, really, the church. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says that Jesus has been given a name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth everywhere and say that Jesus is Lord. We read in the Revelation, John writes as he sees and he sees this one who's willing, who's able to take the scroll, the scroll of all of human history, the scroll of everything that's instructed by God to take place and Jesus is the one because he's worthy. Jesus is the one who is the king. He is the one who will take it. He is the one enthroned and then all is around him. You see, something has happened. The king has come. Now you might be tempted to say, It's over. Until, of course, you lived another minute. And you realize, this can't be it. It's got to be something else to come. The head of the serpent while crushed still, there's sin. In fact, I don't know about you, but I've sinned already various ways today. Good thing for me is I have two times of confession every Sunday morning, you know. Sometimes people say, I came to the first service and the second service, the first time of confession was longer than the second. I said, I only had an hour. (laughs) Uh, It's all geared to me, that whole confession time, however long it is. If it goes too long for you, it's just you've had a better week. Um, But you see, we we realize sin is still here. We, we, We see it's still lurking. We see injustice. We see poverty. We see all kinds of things that we don't identify with the rule of the king, the righteous rule of of God on the earth. And so we say, it isn't quite here yet. And the answer is, no, it's not. But the king has come. And let me sort of, this won't be quite the end, close. Let me use an example I hate to use because it's 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 just unseemly, but I'm gonna use it anyway. It's about basketball. It's about LeBron James. If you were on this planet last summer, you would have known that LeBron James, who played for the Cleveland Cavaliers, was looking for a new team, and everyone was trying to lure him, and his old team was trying to keep him. Well, the, you might imagine, since his name is LeBron James, that they called him King James, and so they were speaking much of the king. The owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers in trying to keep LeBron in Cleveland, said this, the kingdom lies where the king resides. Uh, made good copy. LeBron went to Miami. Tells you something about Cleveland. <laughs> but it's a true statement, you see. The kingdom of God lies where the king resides. Now, where does the king reside? Yes, in glory, seated at the right hand of the Father and in us. We are to be the manifestation of the righteous rule of God. We are to be the manifestation of the kingdom of God. We are to be a manifestation that says the kingdom of God has come. How do we know that through us? We know the kingdom of God has come because the shepherd has come, because he rules and reigns, because he's come and he's sought us and he's bound up our wounds. He's healed us, meaning he's come and he's rescued us from sin and our sins are forgiven 
And we're now those who live that out. We're evidence of that. We exist to say, he's come. It's here. Not in his fullness. No, not at all. Trust me. Watch me. It's not full yet. But, 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 but it's here. And you see then, as, as the very character of Christ, the king, works its way in us and then through us, as we live out the very character of Christ, people to see, yes, the kingdom has come. Why? Because the kingdom lies where the king resides. And he's to live out, you see, through us. Now, that's not the whole extent of the kingdom of God, obviously. He rules and reigns over all things. But the fact that Christ has come and he's lived in us is to be lived out of us through the course of our lives so that people see the mercy and the justice and the kindness and the forgiveness and the grace of God were to be that. And you see, the guarantee then, the hope that we have is that God has made a promise. God has made a covenant. God covenanted with David. God covenanted with Jesus. And then the promise will come true. And what is that promise? That a day will come when we'll see this kingdom in all of its fullness. And the king will reside on the new earth. And the kingdom will be here. See, that's our hope. And now we live, for the men at the men's retreat, you got this from Kelly Liebengood, from the way that we now live is, in the, is with patient endurance, that is with faith and humility. That we're humbled by the fact that the king has come. Because you see, one of the amazing things, if you have opportunity the rest of the day, to read the end of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the way that David responded to this promise of God was, was, was like this. He said, wow. That's a translation of about 20 verses. He said, well, who am I? Who am I that you would make such promises to me? And we get the same thing. Wow. Who are we? That God would say, I'll reside in you. I'll rule over you. I'll conquer sin and death so that you may live. I'll conquer sin and death so that you may have restored life to you that was lost in the garden. And a day will come when you'll live on the new earth in my presence and you'll see the fullness of the kingdom and you'll live right there. And we say, wow. Who are we? Let's pray, Father.